And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, and I'm just so excited. I'm your co-host, Michael Campbell, and I'll be interviewing our fellow co-host, Greg Howell, here, because something really significant recently happened, and we just want to celebrate a little bit and 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 just kind of unpack uh, and take in this moment. Uh, Greg, something really <laughs> big happened just recently. Tell us what that is. Well, I've uh, been working for quite a long time on my uh, doctorate in church history, and I defended my dissertation uh, just a little while back, a couple weeks back, okay. uh, successfully with just some minor revisions. Congratulations, Dr. Hey, Howell. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, you did a PhD in American religious history, right? Yep. Where where did you study? I came to a little university out in Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, Regent University. Okay. And uh, had a church history program. Started it quite a while ago, back mm-hmm. in uh, 2015. So it's taken a little bit of time, but that's what seven, eight years. With a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not too unusual, Greg. I mean, that, that's usually. Anywhere in the five to ten year range is, is pretty normal, I would say. Uh, so, yeah. man, congratulations! But it I felt hope you're long. Basking in, and I hope you and your family just could kind of soak this moment up a bit. We have, we have. We've uh, went out for a nice little dinner and uh, just kind of celebrated all along the way. So, yeah. Well, some people say it's like having an extra child. So uh, there you go. Your family <laughs> just got a little bit bigger, and so yeah. we have. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Greg Howell. So I'm I'm just so stoked. And uh, tell Thank us you. a little bit about what you actually study. What was your topic? Why did you become interested in this topic, Greg? So help us yeah. out. Uh, my topic, uh, I boiled it down a couple of ways because mm-hmm. honestly, you get that question all the time. And I, I, I focused in on a history of Adventist hermeneutics, mm-hmm. which okay. sounds ridiculously boring. All right, hermeneutics, just help us out for a second. What is that really quick for someone that might not know? Sure. It is basically the way you study the Bible, okay. the method, the tools, um, and the, the way you go about reading it so that you can understand and interpret it. So like the interpretation of inspired writings, basically, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. You can have a hermeneutic of anything, mm-hmm. but this is, yeah, specifically, how do we study the Bible? And I, I would say probably a healthy imbalance is what we're kind of striving for, right? Exactly. Looking yeah. for some sort of goal to to drill down and figure out what the Bible really meant. Yeah. Um, and not not putting our own ideas into it, but mm-hmm. pulling out ideas that are supposed to be there. To be faithful <laughs> yeah. to scripture, right? And inspire. Exactly. Writings. That's that's the goal. Okay. And so, so I studied a, a history of that because right. our church from its earliest point, mm-hmm. has had a hermeneutic that they preferred. Okay. Um, and just looking at how that kind of worked its way through the denomination until now. So if I'm hearing you right, how our church and its history has a history of how they've studied and interpreted the Bible and maybe yeah. Ellen White. Hmm? Uh, Ellen White is right along with some of that, yeah. Okay, all right. So what led precipitated this, Greg? <laughs> uh, gr- 
growing up as an Adventist. <laughs> All right. So you're kind of wrestling with your own inner, you know, your own past, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I think um, growing up in the church, you get to see a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I got to watch the uh, the worship wars or the celebration discussion uh, from from a very close point. Oh, wow. And a lot of those discussions were very contentious. Sure. And my church um, had a had a big falling out and a kind of a split over how they were going to worship in their services. And I got to kind of see what discussion in the church looks like early on. So if I had to subtitle mm-hmm. my dissertation research, I'd call it "Why do we argue?" Oh, okay, all right. And we do argue. I mean, that's that is part of we have different perspectives, but mm-hmm. I guess part of it is also how do we do so in a winsome and constructive way versus I guess there are other times when it hasn't been so winsome and constructive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And and part of the reason that I think uh, the the topic is worth studying is figuring out how to do this better than okay. perhaps we have done in the past. Yeah. So I just want to pause for a minute. These worship wars <laughs> after celebration, I mean, I'm doing like a little feeling check here, you know, because I'm uh-huh. kind of remembering my own uh, growing up because we are about the same age and grew up through the same kind mm-hmm. of era of Adventism. But this is kind of like the some the, you know, more contemporary people are pushing for more contemporary. I'm thinking like drums and guitars and stuff like that versus more traditional yeah. like organ music, more high traditional hymns and stuff like that is is that the kind of what i'm I'm remembering am am i on the right yeah okay yeah looking at it from traditional worship traditional style Mm -hmm. and more of what we would today just call like normal worship music but back then it was like hillsong and and willow creek Mm -hmm. and those those groups that were kind of pushing a new way of singing and new hymns um and new instruments and styles yeah so if I'm hearing you right, just unpack this a little bit, uh, hermeneutics or how we interpret inspired writings impacts the way we worship, but it, it really just impacts everything, all things I, Adventist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly, the, the, the core assumption of my research says we disagree because we approach the Bible differently mm. and, and we, we find different interpretations depending on the method we use to study. All right. So... Elevator pitch in a nutshell. What did you find? If you can, do <laughs> what that, I found. <clears throat> oh, I can. I've I've had some practice telling people this stuff. All right. Um, what I what I found is that throughout the church's history, mm-hmm. we have had multiple hermeneutic trends okay. that have kind of grown up mm. from our earliest years all the way up to our present, and I identified five of them. Um, with some case studies and some historical background hmm. that I think have influenced us all the way along. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've used them at various points, and we've developed them because of the cultural context that we were growing up in. Fascinating. So, so if I'm hearing you right, there was kind of like a basic assumption or a basic, very broad hermeneutic, and then out of that, you know, over time, as time kind of went on that there become became more clearly defined these five different hermeneutics. Am I hearing you that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us more. Sure. Um, if we had to start, the easiest place to start with most Adventist research is mm-hmm. William Miller, right? Ah, I love him. And 
Miller is is reading his Bible and his coming back to his early Baptist faith. Right. And in his very early pamphlets, he's putting out a hermeneutic that he's using. Hmm. Uh, he had 15 points or methods of Bible study that he kind of outlined. Here's how I read the Bible. And um, we've we've typically talked about it as if he just came to all of his conclusions about the second coming and Jesus and everything um, with a Bible and a Cruden's concordance. Mm. Uh, but really, if you're looking in deeper, there were things in his mind and in his, in his worldview that influenced his reading as much or more than just a Cruden's concordance. Um, there's precursors, right? We mm -hmm. come to everything with a bias. Yeah. And so identifying here's Miller's hermeneutic. Uh, here's some of the factors in his his world that affected his hermeneutic, um, then kind of springboards us on. Mm -hmm. And Miller starts with this I this is basic idea that you can read the Bible, understand it, and come to conclusions. Um, and then the next generations of Adventists that have kind of grown out of those Millerites uh, took some of it and had to adapt it. Um, I use Joseph Bates and uh, the Bible readings for the home uh, mm -hmm. series that was put out. And noticed that they tried to take Miller's hermeneutic, but their times forced them to do it a little bit different. And that hermeneutic kind of grew through it. I called doctrinalized proof texting because Bates is growing up in the 1850s and 60s into a, a, a method that was much more apologetic. Okay. And he had to adapt his Bible study to, to work with open debates. And with this public evangelism in cities that he would just walk into and 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 start preaching and, and get a 15 week series going with. And so his Bible study method changes. Okay. Um, you we have a great tool, a source book for his studies uh, in his personal Bible that uh, Andrews has at the Center for Adventist Research. You did like a paper on that. I, I did. Yeah. But just in the back. Mm -hmm. Is that part and of that, your dissertation now, too? It is part of it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You got to right. use research you've done, right? Sure. Yeah. All right. Tell us. So, so Bates's Bible is a record of his, his Bible study techniques that he used when he went into cities and people's homes. Mm -hmm. And so you can see his hermeneutic in live time there. It's got chain references that link you from one verse to the next. He's got topics he's pasted in there. State of state of man, state of the dead. Um, and you can just follow his studies as if you got to sit down with um, with the, the various people that he worked with, uh, you know, the most honest man in Battle Creek. You know, I, it, it's it's those kind of studies that he would have done. So you follow him through there and you can see how he shifts things from how Miller did it to his own present context. From that point, um, Bible readings for the home starts coming out and you get a whole nother hermeneutic there with um, a, an even more fleshed out doctrinal way of studying where we have 150 Bible topics and questions, and we've outlined this proof texting lists that uh, just kind of push forward the idea that we study the Bible to understand doctrine and to have a very clear list of verses of why we believe these doctrines okay and again that's a that's a hermeneutic that's specific with a goal in mind mm -hmm. so 
yeah, from there, um, I identified over time anyway. Um, I usually had to jump decades, okay, which was kind of the the that was the challenge of the research is I didn't focus on just a one time or one story. So I it's focus a little on eclectic a... in that you're picking different, you know, times with different hermeneutics. Am I yeah. getting you right? Yeah, case studies, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. My my goal was to study the history of the idea, mm -hmm. <laughs> the history of a method that we that we used. So that was definitely a little bit more challenging in that sense. Okay. So we got but, Miller um, Bates. Miller Bates, and then I move on to an Ellen White centric hermeneutic, hmm. which really comes into um, prominence during her own lifetime. Mm -hmm. But it's where people used her to help them interpret the Bible. So taking her writings, reading them, and using them as an explanation or as a tool that says, oh, how should we understand this verse? Okay. And she didn't always like that. <laughs> uh, she kind of, I would say, even resisted it, right? She did. We, we, call, we call it using her as a divine commentary, right? Mm. Um, she fought against it in her own lifetime when it came up and said people just need to read their Bible. Um, if you would read it. Well, she said, you wouldn't even need to read me. Um, mm -hmm. But there was various points where, you know, she pushed back and people just kept doing it. By 1915, she has died and is no longer there to really push back as strongly. And so people just kept doing what they had been doing. So that hermeneutic of using Ellen White to explain the Bible becomes a really prominent thing. And I, I highlight... Um, the rise of the Adventist reform movement mm -hmm. as one of those moments that where you can see that hermeneutic really working in a strong and, and an unfortunate way, actually. Yeah. Um, the reform movement comes out of world war one and it's a story of German Adventists that resisted conscription into the army during world war one mm -hmm. based on their belief that you couldn't participate in war because you'd have to work on Sabbath and you would have to kill. And okay. that's, I mean, a, a, a good argument. The government, however, said your denomination, your church has to come to us and tell us that that is an official position, that you're a pacifist because of these beliefs. Right. And this is World War One. Nobody's getting messages back and forth the Atlantic very quickly. And so they were kind of left on their own. Mm -hmm. And um, the leadership in, in Europe at the time did not stand behind them and their reasons for refusing to uh, participate. And so a lot of German Adventists got left out to dry. Some of them got shot for being traitors um, because they stood up for what they believed. And that created a huge rift. Um, and what was interesting was their use of Ellen White to support the not only their beliefs but their 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 split from the Adventist denomination was a was a huge factor. Um, the way they read her convinced them that not only were they in the right, but that actually she had predicted and and instructed this this new remnant within the remnant would rise, and they were they put themselves into the prophecies of revelation. Um, they were the, the fourth angel that would come after the three angels, you know, and a lot of, um, a lot of Ellen White usage there. The unfortunate thing is that 
the leadership in Europe at the time <clears throat> didn't put a lot of money into translating Ellen White. And so the German Adventists were basically funding their own translation processes and, and trying their best to get Ellen White into Germany, but they didn't get all of it. And it was interesting when you read transcripts later on between the Adventist denomination and the reform leaders, a lot of times they were talking about Ellen White quotes or they were quoting something and the Americans were like, didn't you, you didn't read her other quotes over here? And they're like, we don't have those books. Mm -hmm. we, we only have some of them. And so that, that use of Ellen White, but also that incomplete corpus of her work messed up a lot of their, uh, their theology. Hmm. So their hermeneutic grew um, based on incomplete material, but it was that still strong commitment to using Ellen White to, to interpret scripture that kind of pushed them in certain directions. So fascinating. That was, yeah. yeah. The, the last little bit, um, the last two methods that I kind of highlighted was the uh, historical grammatical method. Okay. And then the historical critical. Mm, and sounds I, like 20th and I kind of lumped them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of 20th century stuff. Yeah. And I focused on the historical grammatical initially because I wanted to, I wanted to understand where we made the shift because mm. for a long time we, we approached the Bible in the same way that um, Bates and Haskell kind of did with lists and lists of Bible verses and proof texting is what we'd call it, right? Mm -hmm. And by the 18, 1940s, um, looking at post-World War II era, a lot of Adventist Bible teachers and scholars were resisting that method because they had seen a lot of abuse. Hmm. Um, a lot of people during the World Wars, a lot of evangelists and teachers had used the Bible that way and that method of studying to promote really... Um, really bad prophetic narratives. Mm -hmm. You know, they had predicted a lot of things during the world wars that this is the end and it's all going to happen this way. Kind of jumped the gun a little bit. Yeah. And so they felt like we can't keep using this method because it keeps making us look bad and it mm -hmm. keeps making us jump, jump the prophetic shark. And uh, so they started to promote a, a more history based and a more Bible language based Bible hermeneutic. Okay. And the my favorite thing that I found, and I'd only heard about it real briefly, mm -hmm. was this this group called the Bible Research Fellowship. Mm. It started in the mid 1840s. Or sorry, 1940s, I keep saying that, but yeah. 1940s, yeah. Okay. That was and it's PUC, great. Right? It yeah, it started mm -hmm. in PUC, Pacific um, but Union it, it actually <laughs> it, Pacific Union. Yeah. But what's interesting is it was originally started at a Bible teachers conference. Interesting. Those conferences caused problems all the time. <laughs> so you got 1919, then you had this one in 1940. Oh, I'm so glad you they, brought 1919 up. <laughs> I, well, I had to. <laughs> I'm convinced if there is something out there to yeah. find, yeah. I, I need to find where they keep all these Bible conference minutes because they get lost and then people find them like, anyway. Um, so 46 is a Bible conference. Yes. 1940s, we get this conference, and all the teachers came together and said, we need a group that allows us to talk about Bible research without fear of getting in trouble 
without fear of losing our jobs. And we, we want to be able to study the topics that we think are most important mm. using methods that are valid and aren't going to lead our people off into weird places. And so they tried to start it. They voted it. They, they made a president. They, they donated money. And it went nowhere hmm. for like four years. Mm-hmm. And a, 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 from what I can tell, um, ML Andreasen was actually tasked with kind of gathering the funds and doing something. Okay. Um, but he didn't. And so four years later, they came again. Mm-hmm. And they were like, should we just give up on the idea? Should we give everybody their money back? And again, the Bible teachers were like, no, we want to do this. So the guy at PUC, um, the, I don't want to say he was, I think he was chair of religion okay. down there. So this is like 1950 I mean, now, right? Well, 1944. Oh, 44. Okay. 44. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he volunteers to take it over and he says, but if I do, here's how it's going to work. And he, I had this whole plan. He outlined, mm. we will not be making this public. Mm-hmm. We will not say that we represent our institutions we work at. Mm-hmm. Well, we will not uh, spread the papers out to anybody beyond the fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, we will make the. It is a private Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's allowed except us. Fellowship sounds like this is like a Lord of the Rings. So Adventist Lord I know. of the Rings group here, huh? And like, and, here's and the fellowship. It's what's, <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is they really did do it that way. Huh. They. They all wrote papers uh-huh. and they would submit them to this small committee uh-huh. at PUC. Uh-huh. They'd read them and like say, mm, is this valid scholarship? Is this even like making sense? And if they approved it, then they would send it out to the, everybody else in the, in the fellowship. Sure. And they would just keep it to themselves. Um, but when you look at the topics that they're studying, it's a lot of the stuff that would sound familiar to us. Uh, who, who, what are the, the, the seven thunders of revelation? Um, what about the sanctuary? We, did we, did we get it right back in 1844? Um, how do we understand Bible prophecy in modern context? Um, they, they had a lot of topics that you hear more about later on in the sixties and seventies causing a lot of problems. But in these early years, they're just discussing it amongst themselves and it's becoming a bigger thing. It only lasts for about nine years. Um, by the early 1950s, it had grown to the point of having over 250 members. A lot of general conference vice presidents were on, on the mailing list and asking for more. It was very popular. Mm-hmm. People were requesting to be subscribers and com- get involved. It finally um, came to a head in the 18, 1952 and the researchers involved were approached by the general conference leadership and accused of being unfaithful and perhaps a little dangerous with what they were talking about and doing. Mm-hmm. And I found this old correspondence with um, Raymond Cottrell, who was a secretary of the fellowship, okay. who was outlining his defense of the fellowship. Hmm. And he wrote through all these different reasons why the fellowship was a good thing and a helpful thing. Fascinating stuff because you get a real sense of what it had grown into. Mm-hmm. And um, he went to the, the general conference session. <laughs> yeah, he was the ring bearer. Exactly. And he goes to Mordor in 1952 at the, the general conference session. <laughs> okay. So and in reading the minutes in the 19th. 19- that year. Yeah. Yeah. 
-hmm. The Bible conference, he did a couple papers for that. Okay. And then he comes to the GC. There's another Bible conference. So there's the Bible conference that sets off these, the Bible Research Fellowship, and then there's the 1952 Bible conference, right? Exactly. Okay. There's more Bible conferences back then. But yeah, they kept um, they they kept going for it, and the GC kind of called him in and said, "Explain this whole thing to us." Mm -hmm. And so he made his case. Uh, It was like a twenty-five page document, Um, and in the end, they said, "You've got to make this part of the general conference departments. You need to have oversight." Yeah. And interestingly enough, Cottrell was like. Well, if that's what you're telling us we have to do, then we will disband it and quit. Hmm. And he did. Mm-hmm. What grew out of that was later on um, a department that was specifically focusing on apologetics and and wrestling with this stuff. Sure. And that department eventually becomes BRI. Biblical Research Institute. That's what we have in the it, general conference headquarters today, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Now, that's not necessarily to say that the fellowship became BRI. Mm-hmm. It was more of they wanted the fellowship to become a department. Mm-hmm. They said no, but then they made BRI. So it's kind of um, like a complicated process, but it turns out maybe a little different than what they wanted, but but it's still the church is realizing it needs its scholars. Exactly, exactly. Because okay. yeah. the fellowship had done good. And, and a lot of people said this is something this is feeling a, a need that the church has. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that part was kind of great. And what's interesting about the fellowship itself is they're pushing a a historical grammatical hermeneutic. Okay. <clears throat> they're wanting to advance the method of study for the church. Hmm. Um, but what's cool to me is that the fellowship had these main leaders, Cottrell, FD Nickel mm-hmm. and and quite a few others mm-hmm. within a year of the disbanding of the fellowship mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have the proposition for the church to make their own bible commentary yeah i was about to say that weren't they all involved in that project exactly the fellowship became the editors and and assistant editors of the seventh day adventist bible commentary series mm. And so there's a direct link between the ethos of the fellowship and the ethos behind the commentary. And That's what awesome. I found interesting was that uh, they ke- they maintained their independence. The Bible commentary never became a general conference publication. Um, it was specifically a review and herald project that was put out there. Even in that, they maintained some independence and and some ability to 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 write what they felt was was true and best and and again they they created a a hermeneutic tool that uh the Adventist church had never had before hmm. so um to me that that was one of those neat little things where you can kind of see the growth of a hermeneutic through a group and then a publication and then how much it was uh the church was impacted by that publication love it so we got historical grammatical. Where do we get historical mm-hmm. critical? Well, historical critical was a little bit trickier. Um, and when you start to kind of look at the 60s and 70s, uh, and especially into the 80s, the, the, the big thing that the church is pushing back against um, becomes the historical critics. 
And in a lot of our publications, um, a lot of our magazines, scholars, leaders are fighting against the historical critics that do not see the Bible as a divinely inspired book. Um, they, they take it apart on an academic level and they, they question and criticize its authorship, its, its um, timing, its, its background, its, its literary style. Um, historical critics don't believe in divine interpretation, but they believe in the Bible as literature. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely summarizing and, and generalizing. Sure. But I mean, that goes all the way back to the that, 19th century where we have people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The German higher critics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a method of studying that was around for a while. Adventists pushed back a lot against it. And in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. um, you've got a lot of people starting to question stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of the scholars that really pushed a new narrative were uh, guys like Des Ford sure. uh, and Ron Numbers. Those are and some other well-known folks like that. names from that time period and exactly for being a bit critical right yeah and and while i would say that they are not themselves historical critics okay so not i like don't believe formally properly out of in that in that in that but they did am i hearing you right they pushed in that direction kind of well you could you could argue that some of their their teachings and their conclusions had historical critical elements okay you know um some of uh des ford's teachings used some principles that people would have labeled as historical critical, mm-hmm. um, even if really he wasn't a historical critic. Okay, and, so he's not fully and, there, but he's he's kind of leaning in that way. In some cases, you know, okay. some people would claim that he used what's called an apotelismatic principle to understand certain parts of the scripture. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that he himself is a historical critic. But he gets lumped together with them mm-hmm. because his narrative is challenging the church and its interpretations that it's held for a long time. So he's perceived as it. Yeah. Okay. And so the last piece of this is that is not saying that Adventism uses historical criticism, mm-hmm. but that it becomes part of the thing they react against. I see. And so all of a sudden, of Yeah. And, and people start getting labeled with these, uh, these principles and ideas. And eventually the church responds so strongly against it that a lot of people's careers end. And a lot of people um, leave the church over how the, the church is responding to this. Including 40 but, numbers, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But their ideas and their, their, their ways of studying persist. Okay. Um, and what's interesting to me is... I'm trained in in theology in the late 90s, Mm. and by that point, a lot of things that Des Ford had brought up in the 80s -hmm. had been fairly well acknowledged, and if not fully endorsed, was definitely like, uh, you know, he had some good points, and here's now what we think. Here's an updated view of these various ideas. Same thing with like numbers, Um, pointing out that Ellen White used sources from health reformers. Like, I I don't think that's a contested point anymore. Even the white estate acknowledges that, right? Exactly. And so our hermeneutic adjusts, you know, with these new informations. Um, Ford Ford is is primarily a Bible scholar. Mm -hmm. His method um, is is in many cases understood and proven. Mm -hmm. But uh, numbers too. He's a historian. So our historical grammatical approach 
is influenced by some of these historical critical elements and continually evolving if that's possible yes okay and that's my dissertation cool i i think that our hermeneutic has evolved so it's like changing it's a it's like a it's not like a constant it's a kind of it's a complex moving evolving kind of thing over time exactly and i think the hermeneutics that we use and come up with today Mm -hmm. um are the result of that evolution um our disagreements are very much influenced by what strand of hermeneutic you have been exposed to and grown up with or been taught. And that will lead you to conclusions that now today we get to argue about. <laughs> this is awesome. Um, I'm, I'm so excited. I can't wait to read your dissertation. I've seen some uh, uh, sneak peeks at, at, at some parts of it, but I can't wait to read the whole <laughs> thing. But uh, tell us a little bit, Greg, how, do, how is this understanding these different hermeneutics? How's that going to help the church? Great question. That's actually my last chapter. All right. Um, I tried to take history and say, why does this matter? Mm-hmm. Because it's fun. I'm a historian. I like to dig around in these old stuff. But how's it going to help my church? Mm. What does it impact me for today? Sure. And I came up with a, a statistical survey because I felt like if we could identify a person's hermeneutic preference, sure. if we could figure out how, why you study the Bible the way you do, we could start to get at the core of a lot of these disagreements. And so I made a survey that has gone through two different revisions um, that attempts to identify a person's individual Bible study method preference. And from that, my goal is to figure out not just what is the preference, but why do you have it? Is it your background? Is it your culture? Is it more of your, uh, your education? Um, what is it that has pushed you to prefer this method over other ones that are around? And my thinking is that if we have historically identified certain methods that are now influencing all of us today, then we can possibly start some of these arguments and these discussions that we have from more of a level playing field that says, I have this hermeneutic that I seem to prefer. You have a different one. Therefore, our conclusions, even though they disagree, may not be 100% right or wrong. Right. It could be a factor of what you were taught, what you grew up with, what your culture is. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then maybe the liberal on that side or the conservative on this side have something to offer each other that could help us lead to ultimate truth rather than just pigeonholing ourselves over here and saying, I'm the only one right because my method is right. So maybe we need to do a better job of listening to each other. <laughs> maybe Instead so. Of maybe boxing each other in corners and accusing each other if I'm hearing you right. So yeah, the, I, I think in my own ministry, the thing that has undermined my, my uh, my peace as an Adventist is this sense that there's only one right thing mm-hmm. that we all have to subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And if we aren't, then we're, we are instantly going to be labeled or, or asked to move on or whatever. I've seen a lot of fights in the church, and I think that both sides have something to offer even if I disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And if I can't see my disagreeing brother across the table as 
valid, mm-hmm. I will diminish the church and I will bring it further away from the ideals that it used to stand for in the earliest days. We came together in Bible conferences and studied and we didn't agree on most of the things. Mm-hmm. And the only reason we have the, the pillars of Adventist doctrine is because we eventually were able to see each other as valid and let each other influence our thinking. If we're not doing that anymore, truth isn't going to progress. Sure. And I think it's pretty clear that Adventism was founded on the idea that truth is progressive. I love it. Well, going back to our roots then, huh? And and kind of rediscovering yeah. that a little bit. And maybe if we did that, that might help us all to get along a little bit better. I would hope so. I, I, I know that that's also pie in the sky thinking. <laughs> well, but with something to strive for, right? We have something, yeah. a goal in mind, something that can help us. So back to why Adventist history matters, right? So yep. Um, now talk just about hermeneutics in the church now. Uh, what's the state of Adventist hermeneutics today? Would you say? Oh, great question. I would say that the official position is that we have one Bible study method. Mm-hmm. We voted on it in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made an official statement of here is the official Bible study method, and it right. was a historical grammatical one. Right. Um, so there's the official stamp of approval there, but there's also the reality in the pew. Mm. And we may make a statement that we voted on somewhere, but the people that are coming to our church every week are getting all kinds of ideas and they're approaching scripture in all kinds of ways. So I do think there's a disconnect between our official statements and the lived version of Adventism in our churches. You can go all over the world and find the five methods that I've mentioned mm-hmm. in activity. I mean, they're there, mm-hmm. but we also find more than those. Okay. I, I only did, identified five because I had a limited word count and because I needed historical categories that I could prove here, yeah. here it is, here it exists. So, but there's so a ton of them out there. Now you um, have like postmodern hermeneutics and reader response and narrative hermeneutics. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole exactly. other world of hermeneutics that, uh, you know, I, I certainly see it out there. Yeah, I I would even add in a political hermeneutic. Ooh. I don't have a good word for it, uh-huh. but I would say we read the Bible through our politics and and approach it in a way that is um, more more dogmatic and more sectarian in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. But it's based off of an outside authority. Um, I, if I was to do a little more research, I would be looking towards a political hermeneutic especially in the last decade or two. Fascinating. So maybe maybe this has incredible relevance. I think so. <laughs> and I think the more we acknowledge that we don't read the Bible the same, the more ability we might have to approach these disagreements. It's 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 an open field. Yeah. Um, and I think I think the way you approach the Bible is going to be contextual and it's going to be influenced by your politics but also the world around you. Yeah. Every time I saw major hermeneutic moments, it was close to a major world event. Sure. Um, whether it's the, the 60s and the Cold War or the World Wars um, mm. or just this expansive growth in evangelism that's happening, mm-hmm. there's, there's major outside impacts that are pushing our hermeneutic in certain directions. Mm. And we have to realize we're a part of the stream of history. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. 
Well, and if I hear right, there's a continuum, right? So, you know, it's yeah. sometimes not always the, the polar opposites. Not everything is black and white here. You know, one extreme no. versus the other extreme. But it does seem that some of our hermeneutics is is based as a reaction to some of those extremes, right? So the more progressive mm -hmm. that are afraid of inerrancy and a overly literalistic hermeneutic. And so they go and they're fighting about against that constantly. So they're kind of looking at from, but but none of them are as extreme as the other side. They would say, well, look at the historical critical. I, I see very few Adventists that I could, in my mind, thinking the 20th century would be properly historical critical. Even yeah. the ones like you pointed out, Des Ford was not really truly fully committed into that camp, even if he pushed in that direction. And yet the more conservatives might have said, you know, look at, you know, we're afraid of, of where that might take us. And so they're pushing against that and going to the other extreme, even though neither one would embrace the full extremes of the other. Right. And so. Right. Uh, but it seems like there's a lot of reactionary theology going on. There is. And that was the that was the the, the model that I had behind my my mm -hmm. thinking okay. when I did this. Um, it was the the idea of generational um, thinking and how one group takes an idea and passes it on to the next generation and what the generation receiving that hmm. does to the idea and how they change it and then hand it off to the next group. Um, and again, there's, it keeps there's, evolving, right? <laughs> it does. And every generation is affected by what it thinks is most important. I had a... Um, at a moment, actually, where this kind of clarified in my head, my my wife's grandmother was um, uh, was dying right right before pandemic hit. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and and I remember I remember her as the one in the family that always got identified as the reason my my wife's family was Adventist because she was brought into the church in these old tent evangelistic meetings, and from there the the family became Adventist. She's the core of that, right? And her view of Adventism was passed on to her children and her grandchildren. And I thought to myself, she has no control over what happens to this after she passes it on to us. She had certain things that she felt were the most important, the most true. And the next generation took it and changed their priorities or somewhat changed how they felt the church was more important here and there. Every generation passes it on, but we have no control over what the next group does with it. Hmm. And that to me was kind of a powerful thought, especially in how we look at not just what we believe, but how we have come about with the things we believe. We, we can't change that. Nobody saw World War One coming and knew like, oh, here's how we're going to react to it. Mm. You just react. Sure. And things change as a result. And then you pass on to your kids this thing that you came up with <laughs> uh, because of the factors around you. But they don't have the same factors. So I I got stuck on that evolving idea that we really are impacted by the, the culture we're in. Fascinating. The, the, the world in which we live and how that shapes us. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, any final our... thoughts, takeaways? I mean, we could spend, I'm probably, I'm sure all day, because this is your passion. You're, sure. you've just been working on this. So, um, uh, by the way, one quick question. Uh, what, mm -hmm. what fun archives did you get to visit? I, I always like to ask that question. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I know you went to a number of different places, but what did you find most helpful yeah. for your research? Um, you know, I visited the General Conference archives, um, a okay. couple, 
couple ways back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, unfortunately, when I was doing a lot of the research, everything was closed. Mm, and pandemic. so it's mid pandemic. Yeah. That's tough. And so <laughs> it was a little hard to do all the research that I wanted to do, but praise God for faithful archivists that were willing to go into the stacks and take pictures of things for me. <laughs> um, big shout outs to Ashley Chisholm Ashley, and Catherine Ashley. Van Arsdale. Yes. I mean, they helped a lot. And, and Jim Wibberding. Research now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I, go Jim at PUC. I had stuff that I needed to look at at PUC, mm-hmm. at the General Conference Archives, and quite a few other private collections. Um, I worked with a lot of people that had images. And the internet was my best friend, too. So the internet archive looking for was also... <laughs> digitization of documents. and Exactly. And I know we did an episode with the Indiana Campbell, but I, I think it should be Indiana Howell, you know, because you're, you're amazing <laughs> at just finding these small collections with people networking and helping to get some of these these rare historical documents preserved. I love it, Greg. Ah, well, well, thanks. It's it's luck half the time, you know. I I see something Certainly. on eBay and I check it out. And yeah. um yes, guy the guy had some of the stuff in his old barn and he sent me the stuff and it's like water damage on the edge and I'm like, "What else do you have?" And he came up with more stuff. Yeah. You know, so you just kind of follow where the rabbit goes. Well, you have uh, file cabinets of stuff at your house now. I do. <laughs> Too many. Thank you, Starting. Melissa, for allowing <laughs> your home to become an Adventist archive. <laughs> she she has been a, a patient saint. <laughs> uh, blessings. Uh, I think of anybody else, right? Our spouses that support us in oh, yeah. research. So uh, yeah, yeah. We, this is a family endeavor. <laughs> sure. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, you know, I think if I was... To summarize anything, I I hope that the, some of the work that I do um, uh, develops the historical narrative of the church. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think my final thought and hope mm-hmm. is that we we learn how to argue better by acknowledging that all of us have a reason that we read the Bible the way we do, hmm. and if we are able to see that there's a good reason for that i would hope we can hear each other better and give each other some benefit of the doubt sure that we're all being honest and true as much as possible to how we see the scriptures yeah which at its core is the christian experience how you hear god's voice through the bible is very much a personal thing yeah and and it's not always going to sound the same so amazing yeah. so um, by the way, we may have someone listening that may want to become an Adventist historian and pursue doctoral studies at some point. Hopefully. Where do you see, what advice do you have to them, and what, what topics would you like to see now that you've done, uh, completed this this phase of your research and this significant yeah. milestone? Where do you see the field going in the future? I would love to see um, more work on uh, Cottrell. Mm-hmm. I think he's a major thought leader in the time. Um, so there's no biography on him that I know of. Matthew Lucio, I think. I know, yeah. Calling you. I, that's that's one I'm interested in even myself. <laughs> I would love to hear and see more work on the Bible study, um, Bible method statement from the 80s. Oh, okay, the Rio de Janeiro one from '86. No, well, yeah, but it starts in Mount Vernon. Hmm, um, at some, yeah, there's some stuff happening in '82 
oh, was when it first comes up. I can't wait to read that material in your dissertation. That's new to me. I found a a very pseudo statement that was published in the minutes um, in 82 that very much mirrors what we eventually voted on in 86. Okay, so, so that's an evolving there's some story in there. the 1980s, huh? Yeah, I want to know more about that. Hmm. Um, and I'd ultimately love to see some more work done in the sociology of Adventism Ooh. because how we understand what the church is doing on the local level mm-hmm. I think is is not understood. And we've seen a little bit of that even just recently. You know, the studies that have come out with people's doctrinal ideas mm-hmm. was kind of startling to a lot of folk. Mm. You know, statistically looking and saying, what do our people believe about state of the dead? What do they believe about how to keep Sabbath? You know, all these different things. Not what we expected. Okay. You know, because yeah. what you teach isn't always what everybody believes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I'd love to see more work done on Adventism in the pew. And how people are actually practicing and believing and thinking at that level. So some kind of uh, just re- reception history. A little bit, yeah. I think I think there's a lot of of, of things that we need to understand there if we're going to have any real handle on the direction the church is going to go. Love so it. that's a little more modern stuff. Well, Greg, this has been so exciting, riveting. I know at some point you're going to work towards getting your dissertation published. Yep. Right? Uh, I'm working on some chapter revisions. (laughs) There you go. And and like all good doctoral students, you're looking at, uh, I'm sure, publishers and everything else. So for our listeners, this is a sneak preview, but but just wait. (laughs) Uh, There's there's some great dissertations recently have been done, including Greg's. And so just be patient as they work with uh, those revisions and and making it the way that they want it. They'll be shaping it, publishing it. This is standard uh, fair for, for people. Standard procedure. Yeah, standard <laughs> procedure. Uh, so it's coming, but you heard it first on the Adventist Pilgrimage <laughs> podcast. So uh, great. First one's out. Yeah. It's, it's such a, so much fun to be able to, to do this podcast with you, you know, each month. It's one of the highlights of, of, I just have so much fun doing it. And, Same. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be great. To celebrate with you, uh, Dr. Howell, you know, this, this <laughs> moment, just, just soak that in a little bit. It's weird to actually accept that now. Yeah. I used to always just be like, no, no. ABD yeah. status. Not there Not yet. Not quite. <laughs> but you're there now. Yeah. They told me I could say that. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. Well, you've you've been listening to the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast where we can uh, explore Adventist past in depth each and every month. So thanks for listening. Join us again next month as uh, Greg and I will be uh, doing some very special interviews about a new book coming out about G.I. Butler. We also have a very special yes. rare collection of Joseph Wolf materials. Uh, so tune in each month as we uh, love to explore in depth our Adventist past. Can't wait. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. Not take us out of this world if he does not want us to become